Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Tuesday, April 9th, and we're talking WWE. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined in studio by Motley Fool contributor Dan Klein. Dan Klein, how you doing? I don't know. Is now when I cut a 90-second promo about how I'm going to beat you? Yeah, I mean, you could. <laughs> you know, Dan might be turning heel today, folks. Listen we're up, talk- brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we're, we're talking about wrestling. Uh, Dan, WrestleMania just happened on Sunday. What was your takeaway from that event? That no television show should be five and a half hours long. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> there were too many emotional peaks. So, like, usually at WrestleMania, you build to one underdog, finally has his day, holding the championship up. They had like six of those. Yep. So by the time they got to the main event, I was exhausted. Yep. Like, And it, admittedly, I'd been watching most of it on my phone in a bar at the hotel I'm staying in, and then on my laptop in my hotel room, which is not the most pleasant way to watch television. Yeah, Dan, I didn't quite get the full the full experience of WWE. I was in uh, Montreal, Canada for, for a friend's bachelor party of the week and did catch the last couple hours of the show. I tell you what, the Triple H-Batista match I thought was incredible. Good job kind of working uh, the different body parts and things like that. I thought that was a great example of good wrestling. Dan, today you know we're talking a little bit about WrestleMania, a little bit about wrestling. We both, we both like that a lot. But we're going to talk about WWE as a business As a business, today probably should. As well. And so first, off the top of the show, let's talk about just where they make their money. As many people will know, WWE is the premier global wrestling brand. You can consider them the NFL of professional wrestling. Where are they making their money? Where does most of their money come from as a business, Dan? Television rights. Yep. So the and this has been a huge question mark until very recently for WWE. They were always a difficult television property in that wrestling is considered a little downstream. WWE's done a good job getting mainstream advertisers to be willing to advertise, but that's kind of a recent thing. So for the last few cycles of TV rights before the current one, their deal would come up and they would only have one bidder. Mm-hmm. So Comcast would say, hey, yeah, we'll give you a little more, but they there weren't now the rights world has exploded so much that Comcast is paying them basically what they used to pay for five hours of programming for just the three-hour Monday night show, and Fox is paying them a billion dollars over five years on top of that for their sort of number two show, which is actually going to be on network broadcast television. Yeah, Dan, let, let's unpack a little. We'll talk a little bit later about the, the, the details around the, those t- TV deals. But just to start off, let's unpack a little bit about what rights we're selling. So WWE produces five hours of weekly original content. You mentioned they have two shows. They have Raw, which has been so, on. So those are the A-list shows. The WWE actually produces all sorts of, you know, let's call it curtain programming, the uh, main event, which is a one-hour show to just sort of get some of the talent on the card. They have NXT, which is their sort of like AAA territory. They have 205 Live, which is the lighter weight wrestlers who fly around more. Some of that's programming that's on their network. Uh, WWE Network is a paid subscription service. It was a hedge against what if nobody bid for one of these properties? Well, we could take it, put it on our own network, maybe add a million subscribers, keep the revenue in sort of the same place. Um, and then they also have the TV revenue from their e-deal and their USA deal for Ms. and Mrs., which is a reality show, uh, Total Divas, Total Bellows, which are reality shows. Then there's the sort of like occasional tryout stuff. They've had cartoons. They had a Saturday morning kid show. They have uh, different cuts of things for international. I don't know if they have a Hulu show still, but they used to have an edited version of Raw for Hulu. They still have that. They still yeah, have yeah, that. Yeah. So. 
you know, but the bulk of their money is made from licensing Raw and SmackDown, the two A-list shows, not just in the U.S. The U.S. is the most important deal, but there's also huge money for them to be made uh, in some of the major markets around the world. Right. Dan, yeah, so exa- you're exactly right. The, the media portion of the business, as we mentioned, is about 73% of their revenue. You mentioned the network aspect of the business. That's been an interesting phenomenon over the past several years. They launched that in 2014 and have transitioned from their old pay-per-view model to this more consistent, you pay $9.99 a month as a network subscriber, and you get all the pay-per-views each month. So, so the premise of the network makes sense, but in some ways there was a disconnect. So they looked at me and you, and they said, okay, you guys are wrestling fans, but you're only buying maybe WrestleMania, and like once a year there's a pay-per-view that like, oh, I really want to see that. So you're spending $59.99 twice a year, that's $120, that's $9.99 a month. So the proposition was, I bet for $9.99 a month, Dan and Nick would want all the pay-per-views, all this archival content, some original shows we produce, some highlights, some documentary, all sorts of cool stuff. And actually, the answer has mostly been somehow that math doesn't compute to people because they thought they would have 2 million subscribers a year ago. They have about 1.3? 1. 1.5. 1. 1.5. And that number goes down after WrestleMania season. Um, and it hasn't been the global success they thought it would be. But there's a caveat to that. The second they signed these television deals, they for five years decided that the network would be downplayed. Uh, that they're not going to produce as much original programming there. They almost never mention the network on the television shows, which used to be like an, an endless refrain of $9.99 a month, because they don't need the network as much as they used to. And they have to make sure people watch their key shows or else those deals are going to go away. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting kind of phenomenon how that fits into part of their business. Um, it's something to watch going forward. As you said, it hasn't quite grown as much as the business would have liked. But when you've got you know an audience of 1.5 million million subscribers, you can kind of depend on month over month. Interesting part of the business. You know, a, as we mentioned, Dan, the media is the biggest part of the business, over 70 percent of their revenue, and that's been growing over time as you know sports and sports related media rights have been moving up over time. However, the rest of their revenue comes from producing live events as well as selling merchandise and. Those haven't seen quite as much growth over the past few years. Uh, you know, have declined as a portion of revenue over the past several years. Live attendance over the past several quarters has been down in the mid-single digit range. How should we think about those aspects of WWE's business and how it fits into you know the investment thesis so for the company? Wrestling tends to be cyclical. You have a, a breakout character like The Rock or Hulk Hogan, uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And that drives merchandise sales, drives the business. It makes it cool because a fifth grader is not going to buy a wrestling T-shirt if it's not cool. So certainly an adult male is not wearing a wrestling T-shirt unless wrestling is very in vogue or we're very out of touch. So right now, the hot wrestling tends to be the smaller independent scene. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen Bullet Club t-shirts out there. They're a New Japan wrestling faction. Uh, Chris Jericho, a very famous uh Longtime WWE wrestler is sort of on his own and working with a new group, has done really well selling shirts at Hot Topic, where some of the people wearing Chris Jericho shirts or, or Young Buck shirts bought at Hot Topic have no idea that they're wrestlers. They might think they're bands or just logos or, or who knows what, but the cool factor isn't there. So WWE is going to be hurt by that. They're also hurt by their number one star in terms of mainstream appeal is John Cena. He sells an enormous amount of merchandise to kids. 
Well, he's barely active. He's a Hollywood movie star who comes back for big shows. So when there's an arena show, he's not on the show. So the kids aren't buying his hat and his sign and his T-shirt and his headband and probably his bobblehead doll and his ice cream and who the hell knows what else. Um, But that's going to hurt merchandise sales. Maybe this pops back up because uh, some of the the women wrestlers are are sort of having a creative peak. And maybe it becomes more cool for girls to wear Charlotte Flair, or Becky Lynch, or Ronda Rousey shirts, but that hasn't in any way been the case yet. Yeah, Dan, and let's you know since since we mentioned it, let, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, WWE has really tried to change their image when it comes to you know how how they treat women on the brand and how how they're they're shown uh, you know on the content, and they they've really you know you, you mentioned the, the reality shows on E, which which is you know, targeted toward that audience as well as, you know, WrestleMania on Sunday night. You had the first ever uh, headliner, an all-women's headliner between Charlotte Flair, Becky Lynch, and Ronda Rousey. You know, how uh, has that strategy worked for WWE over time, and what does that mean for the business? So, WWE decided to go PG for advertising reasons. And there were two things that they got rid of to make that happen. Blood. If you're watching on Monday night and a wrestler has his head split open, it's live. They'll stop the match, have a doctor come out, and either stop the match and call it a no contest like a real sport, or they will tape it up and they do not have the old days in the 70s and 80s where you'd see like Ric Flair with a crimson face. The second thing they did is female wrestling in the 80s and 90s was eye candy. They weren't trained wrestlers. They were in skimpy outfits. They would have bikini contests. Now it is presented very much like the males. And certainly there are male out- wrestlers wearing skimpy outfits. I- I'm not going to wear trunks to do this show any anytime soon, or even a singlet, frank- frankly. So there- there's still you know a little bit of that, but they are shown as real competitors. The WrestleMania main event was a brutal, hard-fought contest between people who are every bit as trained and talented as the top men. That is a huge change. That might not bring in a huge women audience, but it does make it so your girlfriend or my wife is going to be less like, oh, you're watching wrestling? Is it is it for the bikini contest? No, it's because it's a pseudo sport that I like the drama of. Right. As well as it, it makes the brand much more palatable to advertisers. And, and as that was the impetus for it. Right. And, and so let, let's go, Dan, now and talk a little bit about the TV deals that we've just got over the past year. Um, you know, uh, the, the the big news is Fox ha- has you know bid and received the rights to SmackDown Live, which it will air on the Fox Network on Friday nights, which is moving uh, you know uh, re- uh, WWE wrestling from its traditional home on USA on basic cable to now a Friday night uh, uh, location on network TV. What's the significance of this deal for the company, and you know what what can we? Gain, you know, what insights can we gain from that deal when we, as we look forward in the future of the business? So in the next five years, as an investor, it guarantees the company's going to make more money every year. It's an escalating deal. It's worth a little bit more every year. On the surface, it should be better exposure. Ratings have been slowly going in the wrong direction for both of the major shows. There's still huge draws for cable. But if SmackDown, which is the show that's moving to Fox on Friday nights, it's on Tuesday nights now. Tuesday is a better night than Friday. Fox is a much better home than USA. USA had top cable channel versus an actual broadcast network that is in pretty much every home that has television. In theory, that show should do a slightly bigger audience than it does now because of the better home, but also the worst night because young men are out on Friday nights. So if it's doing 2.1 million viewers, they're probably expecting 2.3, 2.4. 
If it settles in at 1.7 million, they're in real trouble. <laughs> uh, and it will get moved to FS1 because the reason this is taking up primetime real estate is it's 51 weeks of live programming a year versus the four sitcoms that aired in that block were each producing 18, 22, 23, whatever it is, episodes. So you're running a lot of reruns, a lot of ridiculous filler programming. This should give you a loyal, marketable audience, a platform to promote NFL games. But anytime a wrestling show moves channels, it is a challenge. So we're going to have to see how Fox promotes this, and we're going to have to see just like, how many wrestling fans are DVRing it and don't change their DVR? I'm fairly confident that the bigger platform and Fox sort of putting its weight behind this as a sports property will work. Uh, and even Raw on USA at twice the licensing fee or what, whatever the exact number is, that's going to have to maintain its 3.4 or 3.6 million people a week consistently be one of the top cable shows because it's already a loss leader. Like They're not making money on that deal. They're using it to maintain their status as a top five cable channel. And that's good for selling ads elsewhere. So it's, it's like paying for NFL programming. It's not so much about whether you make money on those shows. But when you take a lot of money for something, you better deliver or you're taking a big risk. Yeah, I, I think that it's really significant. Uh, you know, USA having the rights to Raw has really driven a dependable audience to them on Monday nights for a long period of time. It's kind of helped that channel, you know, remain uh, of significance. You, you talked about kind of the deepening relationship with Fox, and there's been some rumblings that there may be a new FS1 show. Uh, led by WWE, which would indicate even more deeper relationships, more cross-promotion. I'm fairly sure that's been confirmed, or at least it's that they're going to do some sort of, uh, call it a news desk show. Now, the challenge with WWE, and we both have the WWE Network, and for a while they did after shows. So you could you could watch uh, Talking Smack after SmackDown, and they tried to do like a talk show format where they were still their wrestling characters, but it was a little more real, and it's a very tough line. And when it worked... Uh, Daniel Bryan and The Miz. It was awesome. It felt like real life. It was really exciting. When it doesn't work, it feels like a guy playing a goofy wrestling character who doesn't realize he's on a talk show and he shouldn't be playing a goofy wrestling character. ESPN had a big challenge. Do you remember their Sports Center segments? Yeah, when they had Jonathan Coachman and he so, would have all the folks on there, and yeah, and sometimes they'd be they'd be you know themselves, and sometimes they'd be their wrestling character. And from a reporting point of view, ESPN had the trouble of. Do you report this as sport or do you report this as like this is a real grudge between these two people the way like a UFC fight would be portrayed? So that's going to be a challenge for FS1. I thought they would have been better off with like a highlight show or something like the WWE Network does like Countdown where it's like the 10 best wacky gimmicks of the 90s. Yep. Um, but that's the first of the, I think you're probably also going to see 205 Live, maybe NXT, uh, maybe a third hour of SmackDown. Part of the goal of this is to eat up hours on FS1 because they lost UFC. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, Fox, the new Fox appears to be their strategy to be focused more on sports and news content. And this, this WWE offering would fit right in with, with what seems to be the focus of the business post the Disney uh, transaction. Dan, one other TV rights thing I kind of want to get your thoughts on before we move on is India. So, uh, you know, from the numbers you gave me, it, it writes uh, in India are expected to jump from $24 million a year to around $125 million a year. Obviously, a significant bump up. When you look at the population in India and, you know, uh, what opportunity that might give WWE to expand its audience, you know, what are your thoughts are on the potential for that and how that fits into the So they've strategy? been trying for years. They've had an India office. And it's interesting that they're viable as a television property, 
but they've never been viable as a touring property. They've done a show or two, but it's a sold show where they're getting a set amount of money. Um, and it doesn't make sense to transport wrestlers all over the world for one show, no matter how well the Saudi Arabia shows being the exception because the money is so high. But they don't sell a lot of merchandise. They're not part of the culture. So it's an uphill battle. When you look at a market like Mexico or Japan that have their own wrestling traditions, there is a curiosity factor of the big American wrestling company. So when WWE does two shows in Japan every eight months or whatever it is, those shows are going to sell really well just because it's the big version of something we already know. Mm-hmm. In India, this is not a known thing. So they really it's, – it's a very long project. So the fact that they're getting this kind of TV money is a very strong sign. Yeah, it's something to follow because obviously when, you, when you're a brand like WWE, as you can grow your audience, you really grow, grow the potential to grow your network and just grow the interest in your, in your brand over, over time. You talked about uh, you know the events they've done in Saudi Arabia over the past year, and that kind of kind of gets us to WWE has faced some criticism both for those events in Saudi Arabia as well as the, mo- the most recent criticism we've seen on a, on a widespread public basis is John Oliver on his show last week tonight profiled WWE actually the, the, the night after or the day after uh, uh, his show. Shares dipped uh, almost three percent, you know, on, on the news. Dan, what what uh, can you tell our listeners about you know John Oliver's so, you know, so arguments? Let me, and, let me explain yeah. the John Oliver piece. The WWE considers its wrestlers independent contractors, but not only does it completely control their schedule and their bookings and wh- where they can wrestle. So if I'm a WWE wrestler, I cannot wrestle for another company. Well, that makes sense. I'm a Motley Fool contractor. My contract says I cannot write without permission for other competing entities. Now, if a local newspaper wanted me to write a story, I'd probably get permission. If a direct competitor wanted to, they'd probably say no. That part, WWE's probably okay. The secondary part is that WWE, if you say, hey, after the Monday Night Raw show, I'm doing stand-up comedy, WWE can say no to that. Hey, I got an offer to be on TV. Meh, we don't want you to do that. So they are straddling the line. They don't have the ability to say, you know, you want me to work Monday night, but I'm taking Monday off. I can say, in fact, you can't even tell me what story to write. You can ask me if I want to write a story, but then it's totally my decision because I am truly an independent contractor. If the WWE can say, Nick, you are a wrestler. You have to be there Wednesday night. You're going to work this schedule. Um, you're going to pay for your own travel. <laughs> so it's a it's a gray area. They don't cover health insurance for the wrestlers. They do cover if you get hurt in the ring. They pay for for that stuff. It is a traditionally giant expense. Has why wrestlers have not been salaried employees. Um, and at the top of the pay structure, that's irrelevant. If you're making $5 million a year, who cares how that check is coming in? But if you're a, a contracted guy in NXT making $35,000 a year, or you're a low-level WWE guy who makes 100 but has to pay his road expenses, these are big issues, and the company is flush with cash. John Oliver has every right to say that maybe they should make these people employees. The Saudi Arabia issue is a secondary one. They have a giant paid deal to stage major spectacle shows to a year in Saudi Arabia. And it is a 40 or $50 million. They don't quite break it out, but there's been sort of some backwards math that gets to those numbers. They throw all the stops at these shows. They bring out of retirement wrestlers. You'll see The Undertaker. You'll see Hulk Hogan. They they will pay, uh, you know, last one, they paid Chris Jericho when he was a free agent to go. But Saudi Arabia, as many of you know, has been in the news for humanitarian issues. And there has been, I'd call it minor brushback. I don't think the average WWE fans care. 
And they've straddled the line. They still do the shows, but they don't promote them on their sort of over the the broadcast airwaves as much. Yeah, I'll tell you. You know, I'm a WWE Network subscriber. You know, I, I like the product. I'll tell you, I did watch one of the one of the Saudi Arabian events, and there was some stuff that felt very much like the, propaganda. The, the, no, the no, government. it is propaganda. Yeah, yeah. and you know, they are running videos about how progressive the nation is on a show where their female wrestlers aren't allowed to wrestle, where they're they inadvertently showed a video that had some of the female personalities in it, and they got a lot of blowback on that. At least at the last show, uh, Renee Young, the, uh, the the female commentator, was allowed to be at the desk. But it is a little hypocritical to be showing videos about – and maybe in that world, this is a very progressive country. I, I'm not super up on the politics, but – it is definitely a dicey proposition, right? And it's and it's been controversial. You had some wrestlers who you know chose to opt out of that event, and uh, some as, who couldn't. Uh, you know, Sami Zayn because of his descent wasn't welcome in you know, in Saudi Arabia. And we, when you have a country that's sort of dictating, you know, hey, we don't want wrestlers who were born here. That is not sort of how the American investor looks at things. Yeah, so so definitely a problematic thing. I will say one thing before we move on on the independent contractor side. You know, a little bit of that is, you know, uh, the company probably doesn't want to pay more expenses than they have to. But part of it traces back to the history of wrestling. If you look at the legacy of wrestling before the WWE emerged, it was a regional, uh, uh, you know, product that you had different regions that had different uh, wrestling promotions where you'd have folks like Ric Flair and Andre the Giant would move from promotion to promotion to promotion, kind of barnstorming across the country. You know, but with the rise of WWE, you know, in the late '80s into the '90s, those the, all those uh, 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 regions were consolidated into what is WWE today. So the dynamics of the industry from the perspective of the wrestlers and who they can work for has really changed, but the relationship between the business uh, when it comes to their employment status has not. It's changing back. Uh, and We're not going to talk a lot about competition to WWE, but it's worth noting that there are now a handful of companies where wrestlers can make a legitimate living. So 10 years ago, it was high school gyms making $25 a night or WWE. Now there's uh, AEW, a company being started by Tony and Chad Khan, who own the Jacksonville Jaguars, that have spent seven figures to sign Chris Jericho and 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 some of the biggest independent stars and Japanese stars. And they're taking an interesting approach. A lot of their top talent is are, are employees, but they're also performing office jobs. Some of their, I don't want to say lower level talent, but like the less high up on the card, they have contracts that don't forbid them from working elsewhere. So there's a young wrestler, uh, Maxwell Jacob Friedman, MJF, who is under AEW contract, but he also works on the indie scene. They have first priority on his dates. He might have rules about which TV he can work. So some of the younger companies, Ring of Honor takes that approach. New Japan, which is a, a Japanese program that has television in the US on Access TV. A lot of them are taking more the we're going to let you do whatever makes sense for you as long as it doesn't impact us, but there's no reason for WWE to do that. Right. And, you know, we, we're seeing these new folks emerging. I think AEW is probably the most exciting, you know, competitor to WWE now. They have big names that folks would be familiar with, like Chris Jericho, some big folks from the independent circuit. But I, I think for at least the past couple decades, you know, since WCW kind of, kind of fell back, it's been. WWE and then everybody else. You've seen a lot of these smaller organizations kind of have a remora strategy where when, when WrestleMania is in town, we're going to have our biggest event of the year yeah, in the same and town and those sorts of things. Even what? even that is very recent. Mm -hmm. You know, when I when I was a kid, all these regional territories, you know, the mid '80s, 
existed, but they were struggling. You know, wh- what used to sell out two nights a week in Dallas and then play one night in Houston was now doing one night in Dallas to 300 people. But that all completely went away. And there were the two major companies. There was the occasional upshot third company. But now we're seeing an explosion of where there's probably 30 wrestling promotions in the United States where you can make a fair amount for a night's work. And there's one or two contracted guys that are making a decent living and they're not working the sort of very difficult schedule. And that's good for the business because imagine if – television had to produce all these hours of you know dramas and sitcoms but there were no acting schools so now if you decide you want to be a wrestler sure if you're a big time prospect wwe signs you and puts you into their training system and you make it but if you're not you can sort of take the hard scrabble roach and, uh, approach and go to a wrestling school and work for 20 dollars a night and barnstorm around the country and like sort of make a name for yourself yeah, so we'll have to see how, how this competition plays out. Uh, it's kind of interesting to have the changing dynamics and, and, and that, you know, the, the wrestling fan base is robust enough to support, you know, this many promotions. Um, but, Dan, I want to transition now, you know, as we kind of wrap up the show, talk a little bit about WWE stock and where, where it's going to be going forward from today. So over the past uh, three years, the shares are up more than five, five times. You know, it's $900 million in total revenue, up 60% in the last five years. But if you look at their valuation metrics, they're trading at 80 times trailing earnings. Uh, what's kind of the future for this company? They're in the small wrestling niche, but they're deepening this relationship for Fox. How should investors think about this and where this company fits in? So I think the valuation's a little high yep. right now. I think it is priced in all the best things that are going to happen, which is the five years of the U.S. contract, the upside in some of the global contracts that are coming up. I think there are two things that could offset that. The commitment to women maybe creates a a generation of younger girl fans that grow up as fans. Um, And I do think we don't have a character, as we talked about earlier, that's breaking through to mainstream that's a full-time wrestler. Mm -hmm. If that happens, if somebody comes out of nowhere and becomes the next Stone Cold or The Rock and is there for five or six years, there's a lot of room. They're going to run a full house show schedule, whether they're selling 8,000 tickets or selling out. So there is room for a hot act to kind of drive the business. But, and we've talked about this before personally, there is a huge thing hanging out there is that it makes a lot of sense for Fox Mm -hmm. to buy the WWE. And they are taking a test run. But if you look, Vince McMahon, who is the creative guru behind all of this, is 73 years old. He has a wonderful wrestling management group behind him. Uh, Triple H, the the famous wrestler who was married to his daughter, Stephanie McMahon, is proven himself with NXT, the developmental territory, that he understands how to sort of book and put together wrestling programs. He's built a staff under him that could kind of take over the wrestling side. If Fox could take over the business side, you could take a lot of expense away. And from a Fox point of view, would you rather pay a billion every five years or six billion now or whatever the number would, would be to purchase it and just own it? We saw it with Viacom and Bellator. These call it second tier sports leagues that are somewhat affordable should be purchased. You should just control your costs going forward and own it. And I think that will be a nice premium should it happen. Not that anyone has said it will, but I'm fairly confident that that's at least being thought about. Sure. And, and all this is going to, at the end of the day, depend on Vince McMahon, the, the man who built the company over time, has been you know the creative genius behind the company, has created these folks from Hulk Hogan to Stone Cold to but The Rock to John Cena. 
he controls 80% of the voting power of the company, so he's going to decide where we're going. He's also forward. cashed out $400 million worth of stock to invest in the XFL, a football league that looks a lot more viable given that its chief competition went out of business. Now, you could say a spring league went out of business. That's not good. But that spring league demonstrated that there was an audience. It sort of set more of an ability to charge for television rights. And if Vince McMahon is saying, I'm willing to put $500 million in, we don't know exactly what the losses were for the AAF, but we know they weren't $500 million or even $250 in the first year. So he's set up to maybe transition himself into a new business, and it might make sense to have Fox in that role. Right. It's to be determined how robust that that move into the XFL will be. You know, Just for context, Vince McMahon still owns over $2 billion in stock. But as you mentioned, when you have you know, the, the visionary leader of the company for, for its entire history, uh, you know, selling off shares of his stock, aging, as well as maybe having his attention distracted with other projects, um, does raise a little bit of a you know smell. For I'm not telling him you use the word aging in association. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Vince McMahon, Vince McMahon is 73 years old. He could probably still beat me up um, without question. <laughs> um, all right, Dan. Uh, last thing I wanted to kind of kind of talk about. You know, we've seen over the past several years, and I think WWE you can lump into that. Sports rights really move up over time, and I think WWE's been riding that wave with this most recent sports deal. Uh, you know, WWE is an investment. Do you have to believe that the broader arena of sports rights are going to continue moving up over time? So NFL, NBA, MLB, or do you think you know WWE can be successful in, in moving up its media rights without no, you know, I, separate and apart from the rest of the? So sports it's funny, industry? Chris Hill and I talked about this on Market Foolery yesterday. I believe fully that there is not a bubble that the looming presence of dumb money in the streaming space, uh, you know, DAZN might decide, hey, baseball isn't getting a big enough offer, fine, we'll triple their money. Um, I think you might see a Sunday ticket with the NFL move to a different platform, maybe staying also with DirecTV, but also being on ESPN Plus or someplace else. I think as long as you have one extra bidder that the rights will keep going up, Amazon, Facebook, DAZN, ESPN Plus, uh, maybe Netflix someday, maybe some billionaire that we haven't even thought of yet, or some of these fledgling services. You know, maybe when Time Warner launches its series, it decides it needs a top tier sports property. I am not at all worried about sports rights. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how things play out. You know, you had the UFC deal with ESPN. It seems, seems WAB could fit in a similar role there. Something we're going to continue to watch over time. And Dan, I'll be happy to have you on as we get more information. Thanks for coming on once again. Looking forward to it. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Dan Klein, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. All right, folks, we figured since me and Dan Klein, do I have to use your last name, Dan? Am I too formal there? Um, since, since me and Dan are both kind of uh, above average wrestling fans and uh, you know like to watch the product, we figured we would have a little bit of banter here after the end of the show, talking a little bit about that. First thing I wanted to talk about, Dan, you know, WrestleMania was Sunday night. What was your highlight of the show? I think I'm going to go the very pedestrian route and say Kofi Kingston. Yeah. Uh, you know, watching a wrestler who's been, as they call it in the industry, a good hand. Uh, he was always a reliable guy. He'd get his big acrobatic spot in the Royal Rumble every year. Uh, was never particularly a fan favorite. Was always just sort of a guy. But he played 
inadvertently sort of fell into this underdog when it just randomly turned out that he'd been there 11 years and he'd never had a one-on-one singles match for the WWE Championship. When you have to fill 52 nights a week of programming on Raw, I think I've had a singles match for the WWE Championship. So they played him as this veteran. They had Vince McMahon sort of put every roadblock in his way and you know he found his way into the match. It was very similar to what they did with Daniel Bryan a couple of years ago, but it pulled every emotional lever because you actually went into the night thinking he wasn't going to win. That that this was because there were a number of similar stories on the card that this would be the one where he'd put up a valiant effort and like his leg would break or, or you know, who knows. So to actually see him like you know have his hand raised, uh, that was pretty exciting to me. Yeah, I, I tell you, you know, I said during the, the main part of the show, I really like the, the Triple H Batista match. Not just because, you know, both of those guys are, are folks that I watched when I was a little kid first first watching wrestling, but also, you know, the the whole use, you know, it was a no holds barred match. They had all the weapons you could possibly ever use, and the whole use of those to uh to really tell a story I I think was incredible. Dan, uh who's your favorite current wrestler and why? Uh my favorite current wrestler is probably AJ Styles. Yep. Uh, I, I would have said Chris Jericho, uh, but let's consider him on sort of hiatus until AEW starts up. But what I love about AJ Styles is he is a guy that throughout his career, everyone has tried to get rid of. He he was a, in a ridiculous tag team in WCW back in the beginning of his career. He came to to Impact and sort of was the biggest star and they were very reluctant to make him the champion. And then he walked away to to go to New Japan where he was considered to be like an interesting American who'd be at the middle of the card. And he worked his way very quickly to being the main American and the champion. Uh, and when he came to WWE, you know, he surprised appearance a few years ago at the at the Royal Rumble. Everyone went crazy. And they didn't realize the level of credibility he built up with the audience. They were actually supposed to have him in that match and then send him down to NXT for a while. Instead, he was instantly in the championship picture and it's been a mainstay. So I'm a huge fan of when a guy can kind of defy expectations. Yeah, Dan, I'm not going to add anything else to that. I, I'm, the sa- I'm the same way uh, with AJ Styles. I think he's one of the best performers when it comes to you know acrobatics and stuff in the ring. You know, he's a Georgia guy, so you know I like the Southern boys. Um, you know, I can relate to those guys. So, uh, so definitely like him a lot. So last little, last little chit chat I'm going to do, kind of uh, maybe borrow an idea from one of my favorite podcasts. Pardon my take has this idea of doing your Mount Rushmore uh, uh, of your favorite folks. So we're going we're to do that going back and forth. Being our top four wrestlers all time. We're going to go snake draft style. Dan, I'll let you go first. Who you got and why? I think you got to go Ric Flair. Like there, there can't be a Mount Rushmore of wrestling without. So Ric Flair spanned generations. He was the last touring NWA champion, meaning he he as the champion worked for the organization and he would go and highlight the show in St. Louis and then Texas and then Charlotte every place he was he was the main event and he was working 60 minute matches against the beloved local babyface and he had to win yep. <laughs> so he had to deal with the pure hatred of the crowd and then he managed to seg into WCW which was you know more of a corporate organization where he just worked for one company and he was too old to be champion for 20 years where they kept having to come back to him as champion because he was who the fans believed in yeah i mean and rick flair's one of those guys that folks still know today you got the whole two claps and the rick flair meme going around you see all the, all the kids doing that Definitely a good pick off the top. I'd say for me, got to go Stone Cold Steve Austin for the number one pick. You know, everybody, you know, as, as a kid who was born in the 90s, you know, you, you grew up with him. And it, and it was maybe one of the first storylines where they made the whole company the bad guy. You know, Mr., you know, Vince McMahon, Mr. McMahon made the whole company the bad guy. And it just was gangbusters. I mean, that, that was, 
you know, the, the, the peak of wrestling and Stone Cold was, was the epitome of that. Um, you know, I've listened to his podcast a little bit. He's an entertaining guy. Uh, you know, uh, always loves Stone Cold. Stone Cold and Honestly, that glass-breaking interest music has got to be one of the top <laughs> one of the top pieces of interest music of all time. Dan, who you got for number two? So my heart wants to say Carrie Von Erich because as a kid I grew up and I was I I loved it. The whole like you know baby face can't quite win the title. His brother dies. He finally gets over the top. Now I realize how incredibly exploitative that that was. Um, but if we're gonna go, you got to say The Rock. Yeah. Um, because there are few people who just hearing the beginning of their entrance music gives you chills and who, even though, you know, he's not going to wrestle and he's just going to do his catchphrases. It's still unbelievably exciting. Yeah. And, and he's probably the biggest star to ever come out of WWE, the biggest action star today. I'll give you a, uh, you know, for my, my number two, I, I have a soft spot for macho man, Randy Savage, <laughs> best voice in wrestling, you know, the, Oh yeah's and the, the cream of the crop and all that stuff, you know, love the elbow drop off, off the corner of the ring. Gotta love macho man. And, you know, even when he was like in movies, I mean, the guy, the guy just being himself was a character. And so, you know, I love him. So yeah, he much. wasn't fair to Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. All right, Dan, number three, who you got? Uh, Chris Jericho. Yep. So Jericho is an interesting story. He was a pretty boy, mid-card baby face. Kind of they didn't do a lot with him in WCW. And if you remember, he comes to WWE with the countdown clock. You didn't know who it was going to be. And, you know, he comes out at... at as Y2J, sort of a play on the whole Y2K countdown. The first night, he's the biggest star in the company. And then he fizzles out. Very quickly after that, he's wrestling on Sunday Night Heat, the old MTV show, against you know Hardcore Holly and wrestlers you don't remember anymore. And he reinvented himself back into the main event picture. And then he left to go do other things. And every time he came back, it would be stunning. And he'd be a totally new character. For the, for the past year, he's been working for New Japan Wrestling, playing this sort of like villainous playboy kind of character. And it's totally believable. And now that he's you know signed with, with AEW and, and he's sort of the cornerstone of that promotion, this is a guy who's in his mid-50s. I sorry, Chris, if you're a little younger than that, uh, but around that, that not only has sort of transcended the business as he's a star, as a podcast host, he sold out a cruise. Um, he's a rock star. I mean, he, he has his yeah, own yeah. Band. I mean, I mean, and, and a band that's not a novelty. I mean, Fozzie's not the biggest band in the world, but they're like a mid-level band on like a you know heavy metal music festival. Uh, he he could be a viable making a living as a musician, which no one ever pulls that off. But but as a wrestler, his accomplishments are just incredible because he's figured out like every appearance, you just can't take your eyes off it. Yeah, and it, you know, the list, uh the flat the flash up jacket, all that. I mean, yeah, one of my favorites as well. Um okay, I'll go for my number 3. Can't believe he fell this far. Got to be the Undertaker, okay? <laughs> you know, he's one of those uh you know, Undertaker is kind of semi-retired at this point, still hanging on. Actually showed up on Monday Night Raw on Monday to, you know, give the Tombstone pile driver to Elias. But um you know, he's just a legacy of a forgotten time. So if you had told me introduced a leg, uh, you know a wrestling character to me today and said it's an undead mortician with magical firepowers, <laughs> okay, that doesn't talk and wears this outfit and walks as slow as you possibly can out to the ring, it would never work. And it has worked the entire way through uh, for him. So it's just, and you know, it, see, this, I can test you on this one. Yeah, I've always found this character stupid. Yeah, like, uh, okay, he dresses like an undertaker. That's kind of menacing. But they always gave him magic powers, yeah. and you lost me at magic powers. Like, make him unbelievably tough, and you think he's down, and he does the pop-up. That's kind of awesome. His agility and walking the rope was really great. 
but the whole like he could summon fire like like come back from the dead and like some of that just that lost me in like 80s silliness in the 80s so then bring it to like 2010 and it was really dumb in my opinion yeah you're, you're probably right but I, they found a way to make it work and i think this has got to be the first this wrestlemania on sunday had to be the first one without the undertaker you know yeah. in, in in recent memory so you know for for him not to be a wrestlemania on sunday kind of kind of the the, the turning of a page you know on the history of the business um, but I, I think he's got to be on any list. Okay, Dan, your last one. Who you got for me? Eddie Guerrero. Eddie Guerrero. Yeah. So sadly, life cut short. Um, you know, somewhat uh, his own excesses eventually caught up to him, though he was, you know, supposedly well beyond that at the end. But just as a personality, could be the smarmiest bad guy. Could also be the most charming babyface. Was a believable underdog character. And was one of those guys, like, the U.S. wrestling business has always been a little bit racist. It's always been a little bit hard for an African-American, for a Hispanic personality to sort of get to those top spots. And Eddie Guerrero was absolutely willed himself into being a top-tier character and a, a world champion and just, like, someone who was totally credible and believable in that role. Yeah, and they haven't. There really hasn't been, a, you know, an heir apparent to Eddie Guerrero. They've been trying. Comes, yeah. I mean, they've 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 tried with Alberto Dorio, with uh, uh, Sin Cara, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, Andrade now, yep. and it's just there's a level of charisma you can't teach. Yep. All right, Dan. My last one. I'm gonna go, and I can't believe he he didn't get on your list that he's fallen this far. But it's got to be Shawn Michaels, HBK. You know, I mean, <laughs> talk about a guy that can be smarmy, who can you know do the most incredible acrobatic uh, uh, you know stunts in the in the arena. Has a great uh, uh, you know uh, gimmick. The whole the whole Degeneration X. Uh, you know, he retired and then came back and was just as good as he ever was. Um, I think he's one of the icons of the sport. One of the, one of the people I'm really happy to see. You know, he made made that return earlier this year. I don't know if that yeah. if that was the best idea, but I, I think he's one of those folks that you know, whenever you see him out there, you got to get a little bit excited. It's funny. I have mixed feelings because his first run, he's famously was a bad guy. He sabotaged people behind the scenes. He was a, a you know substance abuse, and this is all in his book. So I'm not speaking out of school here. And then he's become this upstanding, you know, now he works in developmental and he doesn't need the money, teaching young kids the business and sort of giving back. So he's really like a redemption story. But there's a part of me that go that still has it as like, oh, this is the guy that like conspired and, you know, screwed over Bret Hart. And how Bret Hart didn't make this list, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, Bret, Bret Hart might have been a little bit, uh, I was a little young to really, really get the full the full brunt of his, his greatness. But uh but yeah, I think he's another guy, honorable mention for us, for sure. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. For our listeners, if you have a uh, Mount Rushmore of your favorite wrestlers, I'd love for you to tweet them at us, at MF Industry Focus. If you like this discussion, please let us know. We might do more of them in the future. Dan, thanks again for coming on. Always love having you. Thanks, Nick. Full on.